Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. John Waters is one of Australia's most recognised and favourite actors. His theatre credits span productions in Australia and the United Kingdom. Demonstrating terrific versatility, John has taken lead roles in an array of plays and musicals. He made his debut as Claude in Harry and Miller's production of Hair. Subsequent performances include Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, They're Playing Our Song, An Ideal Husband, The Woman in Black and My Fair Lady. As well as his 20-year involvement with the iconic Australian children's show Play School, his other television credits include City Homicide, All the Rivers Run, Rush, All Saints and Division 4, for which he was awarded the TV Week Silver Logie for Best New Talent in 1975. For 30 years he has been touring the self-penned Looking Through a Glass Onion, a part monologue, part concert that celebrates the man and phenomenon of John Lennon. The show has played throughout Australia, the UK and New York. As an accomplished musician, John has released a number of recorded albums and EPs, adding to his illustrious career. Well, hello, JW. It's It's been a while hey, since we yeah. caught up. Yes, and uh, it's lovely to see you. Yeah, yeah. Um, 2020 has been a shitty year. Have you fared okay? Just to really... Well, it, yes and no, because I, I haven't fared that well in terms of work, as indeed have... Uh, Many people not fared well, but um, I have put the time to use writing things for the future because I think uh, although we can't perform uh, uh, any live material at the moment because we can't put people in an audience, we can at least get some new and original stuff ready to perform uh, when we can do that. So it's a matter of being primed and uh, first cab off the rank, you know, when we get the, the okay to put people into an auditorium. Have you been managing to amuse yourself? Um, well, it's it's quite a kind of a busy life on a five-acre property in the country with three teenage children, and uh, so that's kind of busy in itself. But the project I mentioned, the writing project, is a musical play that Stuart Darietta and I have now completed the writing of, and that took me a lot of hours every week for the best part of four months. So, you know. I guess what that's what this pandemic has allowed a lot of creatives time to actually get to those other projects mm. that they've promised themselves that yeah. they would do one day. Well, I think that's the positive result of it for me uh, and hopefully for a lot of other people too. It's given us a lot of time to reflect. A lot of people are, are you know, rethinking their lives in many ways, in all walks of life, I suppose, not just the entertainment industry. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I doubt if I would have found the time to do what I've just done uh, in, in different situations. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've been a vibrant presence on Australian stages and screens for... Five decades? I mean, <laughs> constant presence. Yes, well, um, um, the, my first appearance on, on stage in Australia was in Hare, and that was 1969, so that's um, over 50 years ago, yeah. But you set out to be a rock star, I believe, yeah. not an actor. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I was around the uh, world of actors as a child because my father, Russell Waters, was a Scottish character actor, and, um, you know, it was, it was a, a world that I knew through him, uh, and 
that kind of stood me in good stead, really, because I realised that it was actually quite tough. Because he was, you know, he had five children. He was down the labour exchange most of his life. Um, uh, if he, you're not a big star, you end up, you know, yeah, it's a struggle. He worked fairly constantly in he, films, did he? Is he that, did. Uh, a if character you, actor. Yes. If you well, if you if you if you search um, Russell Waters, you'll find all these British movies of the fifties and sixties and forty, going back to the forties that he was in. You know, his his friends who would come to our humble flat in Teddington to visit were people like Alec Guinness and, you know, oh, yes, Rusty, oh, so this is your family. Oh, yes, nice to meet you, dear boy. (laughs) And and I just took that as kind of normal, you know, but also because it was ordinary, um, the thing that excited me was uh, the rock music of the day, you know, and I was a teenager, so I was in a rock band and that's what I wanted to do. But, um, you know, I, I I knew I had a kind of aptitude for performing in general, and um, being in hair, really, it put me on a stage in, in a theatre. And um, I thought, you know, as opposed to like a rock venue or a pub or something, I thought, this theatre, I feel at home here. I think there's something in my DNA that's telling me it's a good place to be. Well, I suppose hair was a lovely marriage of, of, of the stage, mm. but also of the music of the time. Yeah, which, which yeah. you been hooked by. It was a great way into it. And... Um, you know, some of the, the hair alumni like Marsha Hines and you know, I went on to recording careers and so on. And I just, um, as soon as it had finished, I went back to England, um, Didn't thought I'd stay there, you know, permanently. And I thought, oh, well, my time in Australia is over. But I missed Australia too much and came back to Australia again. And it was then that I, um, I did some stage work, but I also um, started auditioning for uh, film and TV because I had an agent Gloria Payton, who uh, had faith in me. Yeah. <laughs> so that first visit to Australia was just a, a working holiday. Or? Well, it was a, it was a, yes, it was an immigration because they didn't have the, a backpacker kind of visa in those days. But I, but after two years, you could go back without repaying the Australian government what they'd subsidised you for in the first place. So we were known as ten pound poms. You know, that's all we paid to come out. And I thought two years, yeah, right. It was actually three years by the time here had finished. And I thought, yeah, well, I've I've done my time. I've got my passport. I'll just go back to England now. Yeah. Uh, I had a, I had a, a, a first wife and baby <laughs> with me, um, Jenny Cullen, who was in here um, with me, and I had a uh, first child then, Rebecca. And I thought, well, well, we'll live in England. I'll, I'll, you know, it was starting again, and I'd started to. Um, I wasn't known at all in Australia I'd only been in you know the rock musical which wasn't to do with the names of the people in it It was the show itself was the star Um, but um, yeah I missed Australia and when I went when we got back I'm things started to uh, take off for me in terms of career we're having Laurie Payton as an agent was a was a great start you know she was she was the best around in those days Was Gloria? I, is it apocryphal or what? I heard Gloria Payton's name. Yeah. Uh, was that a real name? Because no. Payton, you know. Payton. I know that's good. I don't know where she got it from. I think it's um, an anglicised. She she had a uh, Greek surname originally. She was um, of mixed, you know, German, Greek, Jewish uh, heritage. She was a she was a wonderful person. Some people call Gloria the Dragon because she was forthright. And she didn't pander to actors' egos all that much. She just told them that when they were when they were being assholes, quite frankly. Mm. And um, I thought that was the great thing about Gloria. Uh, she and I got on really well. And a very astute businesswoman. Yes. Yeah. So tell, how did hair come into your orbit? I believe you're working. You're a runner on a film set. I was. Um, I had. Uh, I had got 
into a job that you had to do and you're penniless in Sydney as a uh, as a storeman working up for the railways and and um, I, I noticed when I was reading the paper one day that um, a film was going to be made in in um, south on the south coast of New South Wales and um, the the director was a man called Philip Laycock and I thought I don't think my dad knows that guy and um, and I I, I I used to write to my parents, you know, old-fashioned thing of writing a letter, and we got we'd we'd get a return letter, but you know, like four or five days later, and uh, my dad said, "Yeah, yeah, I know Phil Laycock. I did a movie with him." So, the newspaper article said that he was uh, researching uh, for his casting crew, and he was staying at the uh, Siebel Townhouse. <laughs> so I went to the Siebel Townhouse, asked for Philip Laycock, and they said, "Oh, well, he's in meetings," and I said, "Well, um, he's expecting me," and I'm just bullshitted my way, and there was a. There was a, a lady on the um, desk outside his suite at the Siebel Townhouse. I said, um, uh, I've come to see uh, Philip Laycock. Um, and uh, she said, oh, yes, and your name is? I said, um, John Waters. I'm, I may not have an appointment, but, um, you know, Philip's a, such a, a really good friend of my father, Russell Waters, and um, um, I, I feel sure that he'd like to see me. So she went into the room, and I, from, in, from behind the, the door that she half closed behind her, I could hear this voice saying, well, I know about Russell Waters, but I've never heard of his fucking son. <laughs> Tell him to come in. <laughs> so, so he gave me a job. He said, I'm not, I, he said, I've cast a lot of actors from this uh, country, but I've got a lot of overseas actors. And he's, he said, um, as you freely admit, your experience is limited. Uh, he's called his production manager over and said, give him a job. So I worked for you know, like the next three months on a movie set, which was fantastic. Yeah. And I met while I was there, or the Australian cast members, who included the beautiful Helen Morse. And she was with me and a bunch of others when I was doing what I used to do at night time, playing guitar and singing. I knew Bo Bridges was the leading man and there were people hanging around there. And uh, she said, you know, you should be in uh, in Hair, the rock musical. I said, oh, I've heard of that. What is it? Is it being done in Australia? She said, yeah, my, my friend Jim Sharman is going to direct it and he's holding uh, auditions and she knew all about it. So she she put me onto it and I went to the auditions and, yeah, yeah I got into hair, uh, which was great. Not only hair, yeah. the lead. Yeah, I played the lead role yeah. of Claude. I wasn't originally cast as the lead role, but Wayne Matthews, bless him, was just not up to eight performances a week. So um, not long after we started, um, uh, we started sharing the role of Claude and then... Wayne dropped out and did other things, and um, I continued on as Claude, so it was yeah. great. Yeah. Did you have time as a jackaroo also? Yeah, well, that was my first arrival in Australia before going to Sydney and uh, working as a storeman. I, I, my uncle, my father's brother Tom, my uncle Tom, had been uh, a traveller in Australia uh, on the old um, £10 scheme and a very strange and eccentric Scotsman. Uh, but he'd worked as a bookkeeper on sheep stations in the outback, and, he, and real outback, I mean, the central Queensland and these vast uh, sheep and cattle stations, he did the books for them. And he gave... The one name I had in Australia was, uh, was a, a guy who worked at a, a, a pastoral company in Brisbane called Clark and Tate. And this guy, was his name and phone number and address was scrawled on the back of an envelope by my uncle. <laughs> So I contacted them when I first arrived in a migrant hostel and uh, I arrived in Brisbane, deliberately thinking, well, I'll go and see this guy. 
maybe I can go to the Australian bush and be a cowboy. <laughs> I didn't know what the bush was really like. Had you ridden a horse? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and um, so I met this guy, and uh, he he said, "Oh yeah, we we remember your uncle Tom. He was he was as mad as a cut snake." And I said, "Yes, yeah." Well, he actually did suffer from a kind of schizophrenia, and uh, had a few paranoid delusions as well. He he said, uh, "I remember talking to the manager of uh, Barcaldon Down Station, and he said uh, he was uh, he was keeping the chooks awake at night because he used to walk." around in the uh, yard, stark naked, reading loud out of a tartan-covered Bible. <laughs> <laughs> what an image. I said, yeah, that's my Uncle Tom. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, about five months of work there, and I, I just thought, you know, I wasn't ideally suited. to. They were very clever, you know, living in r- remote situations. They did teach me to ride, though. They, they put me in a horse and... Um, kind of slapped it on the ass and off I went, you know. But there Which was, gave you another skill for your acting It career, did, right? yeah, later. I, 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 I think I was a reasonably, you know, they said, yeah, you can sit on, you're all right. You know, it's like a natural thing. And um, so I did a bit of writing and mustering with them. And then, um, yeah, later on when I started with Rush for the ABC TV series, I, I went to, I rode horse every day at work. <laughs> Rusty the Cowboy Rides a lonely trail He believes that harmony And kindness will prevail Rusty the cowboy Friend to everyone Spreads his love across the west and never draws a gun Rusty He'll always be there to guide you Rusty He'll ride along beside you He'll say hi to you So was your father supportive of you going into the family business yes well he was kind of thrilled when he found out that I started doing all this work uh, you know hair was one thing and it was kind of an exciting experience and that was just an extension of me being being a rock singer and a musician but then going into the sort of um, the, the real acting profession uh, I think he was, he was he was really thrilled he came out in um, 1972 he came to Australia and I was working and he was going to stay for a little while but he, while he was here, he, I said, why don't you go and um, go to see Gloria? And, um, you know, she, I'm sure she'd be glad to uh, help you, you know, in, if there's any work here for you. And in those days, you, you could just go from one country to the other and work or not. As you, it you know, it was all, no, it was all free, free exchange. So my dad went to see Gloria. She said, oh, yeah. And she let the ABC and various other people know, oh, Russell Waters, the Scottish actor, is, is here. And he, he worked more than I did while he was really? here. He was only here for six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm surprised he didn't actually decide to live permanently. But no, he went. But he went back to uh, England, and um, and he he died, you know, earlier than he should. He was only 74. He died in 1982. Cancer, of course, which takes people before their time, uh, left, right, and centre. Um, but yeah, he was um, he was a good influence on me, and, and you know, he was not a person who gave advice uh, and talked, uh, you know, let's have a man-to-man talk. He was much more subtle than that. He just led by example. 
you know, and he was a very egalitarian man. He was very loved in the business. And, um, you know, he was the one who, you know, who he said, I can't understand this racism business. What is this racism? He said, I, I see somebody jet black or somebody that's come from some exotic different part of the world to me and I want to know them more. He said, I don't want them to go away. I want to know more about them because they're more interesting than, than all these, you know, run-of-the-mill people around me. And uh, I, it was a nice, um, it was a nice uh, introduction to egalitarianism from my dad. Tell me about your mum, Barbara. Yes. My mum was an amazing woman. She also was in the entertainment industry as a dancer, which is how come she met my dad. Um, but she really just, um, she had a, she had, her first child was born during the war to uh, 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 an airman who she married and who was then uh, killed in a, uh, while he was out on a bombing raid. He was uh, a bomber pilot. And so with her one son, she went um, back to London after the war connected with my dad and um, the, the rest of the remaining four of us kids were born and she was um, she, she just worked uh, solidly bringing up children really um, she, she um, went back and did uh, Amdram every once in a while uh, just to because you know she loved to do it uh, yeah. but uh, she knew the business and she um, you know he, my dad was uh, a bit eccentric and a you know frustrating uh, man at times because of his uh, devil may care attitude but uh, she managed to cope with it all right <laughs> when did you first pick up a guitar um, I would have been around 10 or 11 and uh, I had an interest in uh, in in music at the time I listened to all the pop music of the day which when I was 10 or 11 was basically you know early Elvis Presley and uh, I didn't really do much with the guitar though until I was more like 13 or 14 and uh, then I thought I want to play myself so instead of just knowing three chords I started to learn a bit more and 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 play and I started singing in and I got I got dobbed in to sing at lo uh, local church fates and things by my mum she said oh yes John will provide the entertainment and I went what I don't know how to do it in front of other people you know the... so they plonk a, a chair on the floor and a, a microphone and I I the first song I sang in public was uh, an old Jimmy Rogers song called Kisses Sweeter Than Wine so there I was, all of like 14 years old, singing um, this uh, song about a young man who gets laid, falls in love and gets married. You know, what do I know about it? But I love Kisses Sweeter Than Wine because it went up a semitone every verse. And I was able to show that I knew how to do bar chords by uh, <laughs> playing and singing that. And it was a kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek song. So, yeah. So the riots is a band yeah. that you did. Was that with some schoolmates or? Well, actually, older that? older boys from the same school as me, and uh, so they, you know, we didn't do a lot of um, intermingling between years. But they saw me, or the band leader, whose name was Tony Rogers, he saw me at school doing something, singing and playing the guitar, and uh, he said. Uh, Listen, Jim, I was always called Jim at school. Ever from primary school all the way through school, I had the nickname Jim, which became my actual name. I don't know why, but that's that was my name. <laughs> so I was Jim Waters. I was on the school records. If people look me up at Hampton Grammar School, they, they go looking for John Waters. They, they won't find me. It's Jim Waters. So <laughs> he said, Jim... Um, the band's, um, you know, we've we've sort of been here, been there. We've got a singer. Um, 
bass player didn't work out. How'd you like to join the band and play bass? I said, well, I don't know how to play bass. He said, that's easy. He said, you can play six strings, you can play before. So <laughs> I went along to rehearsals and um, I thought, this is great, because they were a blues band. And um, so we'd mostly 12-bar blues. Um, and I, I actually was, I was two years younger than Tony and probably about four years younger than a couple of the other guys. But um, they were hardcore blues men. I said, we should do some pop uh, chart songs, you know, so that, that, and we referred to the kids, you know, I'm like 16 at the time, and I'm talking about the kids who are my age, but so we, the kids want to dance to, you know, <laughs> they, you know, then there's only so many um, verses of uh, Muddy Waters blues that you can do, and they all start to sound the same. Much as I do like the blues, uh, they said, no, no, I mean, we've got university audiences. And I said, well, how about we do some chart music? So they gave it a shot, and um, so we became more of a, a fun band, you know, rather than, uh, you know, just for university students with long scarves. Uh, and, uh, and that was all going kind of okay, but not really getting anywhere. We didn't have a record contract, and it was, a you know, m m very much a local band as opposed to touring the whole country. And um, then the opportunity came for me to go to Australia, you know, yeah. so I quit. Yeah. So the Rolling Stones, the Beatles are all yeah. emerging at this they're time? All, yeah, they're all coming out. This So through the middle 60s, um, you know, I was glued to Radio Luxembourg, which is our only commercial station we could listen to. The BBC would not play commercial music because it was against their charter. But uh, they, music was being from the continent. This is prior to the boats, you know, the famous Rock the Boat movie yeah. about, the, about the pirate boats. Well, prior to that, they broadcast from the European mainland, from Luxembourg. And uh, so all of the, and a lot of American music as well. So I had a great background in, in uh, particularly American country music, which I love, and which a lot of my rock and roll fans uh, look at with disdain. Uh, but I, I actually like good country music. Uh, and, you know, more, more, more your great musicians and not, not so much the big hats and the yee-haw, but uh, really good, solid country music. Um, I, I find it, you know, it's, it's a rich source of storytelling, actually. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, um, the the um, the genres of music were all there on Radio Luxembourg, and I kind of liked them all. See, I liked folk, and that's another thing the rockers didn't. They, oh, what you like? What do you like? P Peter, Paul, and Mary. I said, have a listen to the songs. Have a listen to the harmonies. They're beautiful, and they'd go there, yeah, yeah, you know. But I, so I thought, all right, I'll just keep it to myself. <laughs> it was late one night, and I was going to heaven. Club in Adelaide next to the 7-Eleven Well, the girl in the door was a bitch But I had to scratch that itch And when the sun came up, she was gone And it felt like hell I stumbled and fell on the road of good intentions With friends whose names I promised not to mention Party all day and night, but then I started to lose the fight. When you came along, I was gone, and it felt like hell. I didn't know a whole lot about angels till I met you. I thought it was just a fable that couldn't be true. But you came along and you changed my life, and I ended up with a damn good wife. I didn't know a whole lot about angels till I met you. Well, following me out here, you yeah. then, is it Godspell the next show? 
Yes, the trip back to England. When I came back, um, Jim Sharman was doing a show that Ridge Livermore had written. He was doing it at the old Tote Theatre Company, a show called Lassiter, which is very much a, a rock opera type of thing in the style of hair, you know, that I knew Ridge well from being in hair with him. And uh, so I joined the old Tote Theatre Company only because both Jenny Cullen and myself were singers and he needed... He was he was using the old theatre company actors, but he need there weren't not many of them were singers, so Jenny and I got a gig in in um, you know what was the the the, uh, the, the forebearer of the Sydney theatre company, yeah. uh, which is an odd place for me to be I thought at the time, but you know it was it was a start of being known in a different world you know and then Godspell I actually I actually did before Godspell I did um, Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Paris and um, it was a show that. I was made for because I knew the music of Jacques Brel. Uh, very few other people did, but from my time spent um, in France, I knew Jacques Brel's music quite well. And so I did that show, and um, one of the one of the, um, the well, the guy who was playing the the Judas slash John the Baptist character in Godspell, Greg Ross, dropped out of the show, and um, they asked for me. They'd seen me in Jacques Brel, and they said, "Do you want to do you want to do um, join us in the Godspell cast?" With Rob Dunbar and a number of, you know, Peter Pano, and it was a, it was a fabulous cast. Great cast. Yeah, yeah. Bill Gluth, Marty Roan. Yeah. <laughs> Great names. So how long did you spend in uh, France? Well, that's uh, but sort of between the band and coming to Australia. Did you speak, uh, pick I, up much of the language? I was good at French, but I'd, I'd, I'd done a couple of exchange trips to uh, France and Belgium. Uh, and was reasonably, I knew how to struggle by, but once I spent five months like backpacking around France and and only speaking French to people, I became, you know, more or less fluent. Uh, uh, And uh, that sort of stuck with me all my life, really. Because your Jacques Brel show, a lot of that is... I did it all in French French, because I, I love the songs sung in French. Their original... The sound of the words is Brel writes with onomatopoeia in in the words that he uses, and he, he even invents French words that don't exist because he can't find the right word, so he makes one up, you know. And it's a it's a, maybe a combination of two different words that he's stuck together, and and uh, yeah, and he particularly his Belgian accent when he sings is particularly um, strong and emotional and guttural, uh, and uh, so I, I, I like the, the drama of it with, in French. Je les vois déjà me couvrant de baisers et s'arrachant mes mains et demandant tout bas. Est-ce que la mort s'en vient? Est-ce que la mort s'en va? Est-ce qu'il est encore chaud? Est-ce qu'il est déjà froid? Ils ouvrent mes armoires, ils tâtent mes faïences, ils fouillent mes tiroirs, se régalant d'avance de mes lettres d'amour, embrouvenées par deux, qui liront près du feu, en riant aux éclats. Ah, 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 ah. Je les vois déjà, compassés et frêles, suivant comme des artistes mon costume de bois. Ils se poussent du cœur pour être le plus triste Ils se poussent du bras pour être le premier Ils ont amené des vieilles qui me connaissaient plus 
Vous entendrez des enfants qui ne me connaissaient pas et pensent au prix des fleurs. Et tout indécent de ne pas mourir au printemps quand on aime le lila. Yeah. And like country music, they're great stories also. They are, yeah. They're um, stories uh, of the underbelly of life, which Brel was dying to immerse himself in, because he was born into a very a sort of wealthy middle-class family. Yes, Jacques Brel's father was... Um, Probably you might call him the Richard Pratt of Belgium in the 1950s. He was the cardboard king. And uh, uh, Jacques Brel was a sensitive, poetic soul. And his father said, well, um, no, no, I presume you'll be taking over in the business. And he said, like hell, I will. He just left, ran away from home and went to live as a bohemian in the streets of Paris. And, and uh, so he loved the underbelly of life. He discovered, he lived it and explored it and, uh, and wrote songs about it. Uh, mm. And they were, they're, they're, you know, very powerful songs to this day. Ne me quitte pas, il faut oublier, tu peux s'oublier, qui s'enfuit déjà, oublier le temps des malentendus, le temps perdu, à savoir comment oublier ces heures qui tuaient parfois à coup de pourquoi le cœur. Je vais plus pleurer 
sais plus parler Je me cacherai là à te regarder danser Et sourire Et à t'écouter chanter Et puis rire Laisse-moi devenir L'ombre de ton ombre L'ombre de ta main L'ombre de ton chien Ne me quitte pas Ne me quitte pas Ne me quitte pas Ne me quitte pas In completely the other direction one of the gigs that has perhaps brought you a great deal of recognition in Australia was as a presenter of Play School. Yes. How long did you do Play School? Well, I did that on and off for probably about 15 years. It started while I was doing Godspell in um, 71, I think, uh, 72 perhaps. And um, I, I, it was a job that um, Gloria said to me, oh, look, the ABC, uh, they're, they're looking for a new presenter for Play School, which I sort of vaguely heard of and I... I didn't really, so I watched a couple of episodes because I said, yeah, I'll audition for it. And uh, it became a job to do between jobs or actually during the day when you were working in theatre. So I, while I was doing Godspell, I thought, this is great, I've got an extra job. And it wasn't highly paid, but it was, you know, it was a job. And then um, I got more and more attached to it as time went by because, uh, you know, it was a really rather a nice thing to do. And it had a very, very good um, executive producer, Alan Kendall, who taught me a lot about actually talking to a camera um, which I'd never done before you know as every actor is told to pretend the camera is not there at all yeah. but if you're relating to an audience who are watching you on television as a and you're a presenter uh, you need to talk into the camera and he and he, he told me the golden rule is don't think of all the, these people out there watching you just think of one person so when you're talking into a camera talk as if you're addressing one person and then by extension of course you're talking to them all. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And that person often is a lot of children. How, yes. how do you find the right level? Because you're not their parent, you're not their no. teacher. Who, who, who a play school presenter is, is a kind of, um, uh, it's a sort of uh, mystery, really. It's an esoteric mystery. You're not a teacher, you're not a friend uh, or contemporary, you're not a parent, you're not an aunt or an uncle. You are a play school person. It's a category of person that exists for that child uh, on its own, really. So you think, all right, I'll be this play school person. I only exist for half an hour, you know, between 9.30 and 10 o'clock. And, um, and the child there that's watching me um, says... Hi, John, and hi, Benita, and uh, off we go. <laughs> and you're doing a lot of those shows live, aren't you? They're not pre-recorded. We, we did record them. We, did, we right. did a couple of live ones, but we always recorded them on one take, so it was as if live. Right. And um, I believe that nowadays, just through you know, the, the demands of modern life, it's kind of cut up into uh, different sections and stopping and starting. But we, of course, in those days, if we wanted to start again, if we stopped... We had um, old, old-fashioned um, two-inch videotape, and they had to roll back to the start, and you know, find the finding edit points was really, really hard. They couldn't just drop in. <laughs> like, so, uh, yeah, they did it all in one, which which made it 
really I think what it what it was 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 very hands-on very uh, appealing to kids because we left little mistakes in there's no you can't go back unless there's something major happened so um, what you saw was um, you know a little bit of mucking around and things going wrong let me take you down cause I'm going to strawberry fields nothing Doesn't matter much to me. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to strawberry fields. Nothing is real, but nothing. Another gig of longevity is Looking Through a Glass, yes. which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen that show, your celebration of uh, the great John Lennon. Yeah. How did that gig start? Well, I had um, a notion about, it had been about, um, you know, around 1990, it had been about, um, actually it was earlier than that, the late 80s, I thought nobody's done anything um, theatrically about John Lennon. Uh, uh, I think people had done like Beatles uh, cover acts and things Tribute like that. Yeah, everybody dressing yeah. up as Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club and all that. But um, just studying John Lennon because he's, I think, the most remarkable mind out of all of those people, those four boys. And um, I started with um, a thing that I co-wrote with Rodney Fisher called the, uh, uh, just called Imagine. We did it with the New Moon Theatre Company in North Queensland. And that was when I first met Stuart Darietta, because uh, he came on board to do the music. And it was kind of, all I had was the, really the start. And Rodney wrote a whole bunch of other stuff that was kind of involving other actors. There were four actors all playing different facets of John Lennon. It was kind of like, it was it worked okay, it was done and finished its, its limited run and... I, I was mulling over the idea years later and I thought, I think I'm gonna, I want to go back to my original idea of a one-man show, but actually a two-man show because with Stuart, um, it, be, it became a two-man show because his personality is so big. And he, we, we sat together and created this um, Looking Through a Glass Onion, which later became Lennon Through a Glass Onion when we did it in New York because the Lennon estate wanted the name Lennon in it. So well, that's what we call it from then on. And... Um, you know, we did it at the Til- Tilbury Hotel, a, a, a series of monologues linked together by the music. And um, I thought, well, is anybody else going to like this or will they go, um, well, yeah, he might be having fun, but we're not. <laughs> and fortunately, <laughs> it worked on audiences. And they, you know, at the Tilbury, they were they, they're turning people away. Was, um, so we thought, we'll keep going with this. And um, we, we started touring provincially, at first, then we came back and did bigger theatres in Sydney with the Seymour Centre, 
and from there we went to London and you know it, it became a thing that wouldn't go away <laughs> we did we stopped touring in about 90 so this was from 92 to 94 it had this huge life including the West End of London um, and then I got involved in other things as did Stewie and 2001 we went back to it did some more stopped again and then in 2011 we started a few more we revived we revived it by this time we used, we did it with a full band and then at the end of the band tour we went back to a two-man format because we the times had changed so much that we couldn't make it pay in small venues with a band um, and then we um, negotiated with the Lennon estate to to do it in New York City and we got a spot at the uh, Union Square Theatre and we had an amazing four months there playing in New York we, we financially we didn't really make much progress but we we were well received critically it's very hard you know they would say to me would you came to New York to make money what are you crazy he said there's five people making money in the big theaters you know everyone else is just struggling by you know so we did that and um, uh, it did it did brand the show more internationally so we've since been back to America and done a few isolated gigs we played universities there and we've been to Tokyo which is weird and Edinburgh Festival and it still continues to be a, a part of the repertoire for Stuart Derrieta and myself because you know there are times when the venues uh, go to we work with a touring company Harbour Touring Music Company and they go when are those boys doing Glass Onion again you know we, we, we'll always have it and I say why not we love doing it we don't get sick of it and, and it, it, honestly you know as you you go on in this business your, your your work doesn't get more and more it gets scarcer and scarcer yeah. but what is it's 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 actually saved my ass a few times to be able to go back to doing glass onion because film and television work gets thinner on the ground as you get older that's just a fact of life you know it's something you accept and uh but i you know live performances is being as i think i said before i feel I feel really at home when I'm when I'm on a stage. Yeah. Um, people say, "Do you get nervous?" And I say, "Well, I might have once or twice when I was young, but I, I don't really. I I love this. I think I belong here. You know, I'm not saying I'm going to be brilliant every time, but at least I know I belong. You know, right. that's a, I feel like it's me, in my place. You know, and it's not an impersonation the show, is it? So it's, no, it's the, very theatrical. The Lennon thing is very. Per, it, it's kind of. Um, are you playing yourself? Or are you playing? I'm, I'm, I'm me. It, it's. You know, if John Waters is on stage, dressed as me, uh, no little round glasses or anything, but um, I use the Lennon voice because, uh, you know, talking like John Lennon was something I did to amuse my mates at school, and uh, they, <laughs> he goes, hey, you sound just like him. So years later, I came to, actually, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to just be this persona on stage who the voice of Lennon comes out of him with thoughts and reminiscences about his life interspersed with the songs. And just myself, an acoustic guitar, and Stuart and his piano. And Stuart interjects with a few little bits of spoken word here and there. And, um, you know, as I said, he's a, he's a big personality and um, he uh, mapped out all, all the music with me. We sat down together and thought, what will we use? What songs and what bits of songs? Because it was a, it was a patchwork quilt. Uh, you know, it wasn't really a set of songs. Uh, it, it, it's a... Uh, it's a play, really. Yeah. It's sort of kind of a play. Where did the title come from? Is, it, is that a lyric it's, in a song? It's a lyric from the song Glass Onion, uh, which is off the White Album. And it's a kind of um, retrospective uh, by John Lennon of the Beatles, really. I told you about the lyrics. I told you about strawberry fields, you know, the place where nothing is real. 
well here's another clue for you all the walrus was Paul and uh, ends with the, the each verse ends with the refrain looking through a glass onion uh, you know what that's that's Lennon's imagery what, what what he means by that is I don't know to, it means something to everybody to me it means um, looking at something but kind of in an obscure diffused way mm. I told you about strawberry fields you know the place where nothing is real well here's another place you can go where everything flows looking through the bed back tulips to see how the other half lives yeah looking through a glass onion I told you about the walrus and me man you know that we're as close as can be There's a great resume of musical theatre in your career. Yeah. Do you, do you enjoy the machinery of a big commercial production? I love it. Yeah. I love the um, I love the big uh, musical theatre companies. They're great places to be. They're wonderful people to work with. The huge ensemble and the you know, there are there are you know, broadly speaking, it's a it's a really happy place to work. But, and leading the company, you've got a great responsibility on stage and off, I guess, to model behaviour and yeah, you, be a shoulder or yeah, lead the well, way. I think I think you still that 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 does apply. You know, um, if you if you if you are in, I've done. I've been really lucky to do some of the big um, male leading roles. You well, know. Look, Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady, Fagin in Oliver. Yeah. Um, Gomez yeah. in The Adams Family. Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. Music. Yeah. The narrator <laughs> in Rocky Horror Show. Yes. Um, Frederick, Frederick in Little Night Music. Edelweiss, Edelweiss, every morning you greet me, small and Clean and bright, you look happy to meet me. Blossom of snow, may you bloom and grow, bloom and grow So, uh, uh, you know, these are, I think, I think musical theatre has gifted the world some brilliant female roles and people tend to think of those great female roles and, you know, qu quite honestly, the, some of the male roles have been, you know, secondary to the female roles, but the, the great ones, of course, are great roles anyway and uh, it's, it's been great to be, to be able to, to tackle some of those. Uh, and I, when I started doing it, I always felt that I didn't have a Broadway show type of singing style, and I basically don't. But I, but 
and that doesn't matter, you know. You just just be real with what you're doing it and do it your way, and um, it'll come out all right, I think. Because yeah. there's great variations with all of those yes. those characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're playing a song that was probably one of the last of the J.C. Williamson musicals. Yes, it was, and uh, and it was interesting to be in that sort of old old fashioned world, you know. Uh, well, it was a, a book by Neil Simon. Yes, uh, it was a, it was um, Marvin Hamlish. Uh, was a friend of, of Neil Simon and um, uh, Marvin told Neil Simon about his relationship with Carol Bayer which he had for a while and they were their agents put them together to write he wrote music she wrote lyrics and their agents suggest they should get together and you know write a catalogue of songs for a publisher and uh, and indeed they did write some together but the, what happened was they they starting off at, at odds with each other they ended up falling in love and, you know, being a, an item for a, a while, didn't last forever. Uh, and Neil Simon thought, there's a play there. Uh, <laughs> and it's a musical play. And uh, so he wrote a very funny play and Marvin Hamish uh, uh, wrote the songs. Yeah. Oh, oh, they're playing my song. Oh, yeah, they're playing my song. And when they're playing my song, everybody's got to... Don't say a word now. Just listen to that sweet melody. note of that was written by me oh hope it's playing my song that table's humming along that awful half out the door is coming back to hear more of my music at first i thought this place was a dive i chose it in haste but they show they got taste as long as they play in my song who would have known nine months ago that i would give birth at my An international hit. Woo! They're playing my tune. Too bad it's ending so soon. But when we all gotta go, it's good to know that they'll be playing. Oh God, I'm praying they'll be playing. They'll be playing a song. A lot of those musicals in this, well, and your TV work as well. Uh, necessitate touring. Do you enjoy touring? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I, I, I like the you know the kind of uh, one big city to the next touring you do with the big musical companies. It's always great. You know, you get to play in all the big theaters in, in Australia. You get to know them, and I like the provincial touring that I do with these small music shows. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've played the back bar in hotels in in a with a remote outback, and <laughs> and that's. That's fun in itself too. Yeah. You know? There's yeah. a you feel like you're a kind of a old old time strolling troubadour when you do those kind of tours, facing the audience every night and wondering what are they going to be like. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and you know, I, I found some extraordinary things about audiences and um, how you it it doesn't it doesn't really pay to underestimate them. You just got to you know they're the reason you exist, of course. And, um, you know, I've, I've had audiences where I, we all, we've all come off stage and said, well, they were a boring bunch of fuckers. You know? <laughs> but just taken as a whole, I've also been surprised. But, for example, I did, the, the, I did a Jacques Brel show at my own, Café Brel, I called it back in those days. And we'd, we'd met, touring with Glass Annie, we'd met a, a guy in, in Moree in northern New South Wales who'd built 
a small theatre because he was a cattleman and um, the cattle industry was down on its heels and um, he, his wife wanted a, a, a theatre venue. She was really interested in theatre. She said, well, my wife wanted a theatre. So so I looked up online really how, how to build a theatre and I built one. Me and my mates, they built And they built this incredible theatre with a cafe restaurant in it. We went and played songs sung in French to a bunch of, of cotton farmers and cattlemen in uh, Moree. And they came up afterwards and said, mate, that was bloody amazing. There's a lot of passion in those songs. And then they, they were a great audience. So, you know, uh, I always like to think of that when I think of, you know, don't, don't ever presuppose what your reaction is going to be when you're performing something. If it's good, it'll get through to people. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're straight theatre, stage work? Uh, yeah. Has also included. I've done less of that, but but a great variety of stuff. Whether yeah. it be you know David Williamson's influence, yes. like a shock jock, or yeah. the Woman in Black, which is a well, traditional was, thriller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was that was that was tough. That was a two man show, and and that was a lot of talking and playing. Um, you know, rate, narrating this thing basically, and then also slipping into about seven or eight different roles. And um, you know, I, I did it with the um, uh, Brett Tucker, young actor, who was uh, who was playing the other characters, an older man and a younger man. And um, and it's got shocks and frights in it, and audience shrieks at certain uh, sudden moments in the play. It was very old-fashioned theatrical tricks. There was nothing technical about the trickery. It was all little sleight-of-hand theatrical things could have been done in Victorian times, you know, and it, I, I, uh, that's what made it such fun, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and The Graduate, an the, American piece. Yes. Are you, are you good with accents? Yeah. I think I'm reasonably good. Yeah. Um, I certainly had to do, a, a, in Woman in Black, I did a lot of variations on... I did every British dialect. <laughs> but, um, yeah... Uh, You'd get called upon to play with an American accent a lot if you work in Australia, but um, yeah, we um, this stage adaptation of the Graduate was really it made a good stage play, it really did. And um, anyway, had a fantastic um, couple of leads: the, the the late wonderful Wendy Hughes as Mrs. Robinson, and the also late, sadly, uh, Mark Priestley as Benjamin. Oh wow! And um, they were brilliant together. And, uh, you know, I played Mr. Robinson. There was a slight adaptation from the movie. A few characters were kind of um, shoved into, into one. And, um, but uh, it, 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 was, it was great for me to do because, as I said, the, the straight non-singing roles uh, in, in, in theatre come to me every once in a while. It's not like my... It's not my meat and three veg, if you know what I mean. So uh, it's nice when one does come up and I get asked to do it. The, the two roles, I played two <laughs> shock jock twice. What, what do people think of me? I don't know. <laughs> it was David Williamson's play. And then there was um, Jonathan Biggins' talk, which I did for the City Theatre Company. Also playing a, a, a rather smug, self-satisfied right-wing radio commentator. Yeah. Nothing like you at all, I can, <laughs> I can witness that. I first met you in 98 on An Ideal Husband, yeah. the Oscar Wilde play. Yeah. A, a company full of uh, English actors yes. and directed by the great Englishman, Sir Peter Hall. Yeah. Um, but considering your background uh, and that English sensibility that was, was mm. there in the cast, did you enjoy that experience? I love I it, mean, yeah. you could have been playing the West End. Yeah, no. it's pretty... Yeah. It, it, well, for, culturally, it comes pretty naturally to me. And, um, you know, I, I, I really loved uh, the uh, company of and the 
company on stage of, Ooh, of John John and Googie, yeah. Nicky Henson, yeah, we had Nicky yeah. Henson, Stanley Page, yeah, <laughs> Stephanie, <laughs> Stephanie Beecham, yeah. who was uh, who was uh, marvelous. And it was typical Wildian play, full of larger than life characters. Um, and they also sadly lamentedly now late Penny Cook, who played uh, my sister. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a very f- fine production actually, and. and well, as you know, it, it was it was the first production in the Lyric Theatre at the, what was then called Star City Casino, mm. and it was a straight play, an Oscar Wilde play. And if you were to say, well, how would that ever make any money? Well, we packed it in, didn't we? Absolutely. I mean, it was like a, it was a it was a big hit. Uh, perhaps you know the the new venue was appealing to people, but it, it certainly but got we great did well reviews. in Brisbane and also Melbourne. Did well everywhere. Um, Great production, very funny play. And probably one of the last of the commercial plays. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You don't very often get commercial theatre companies doing straight plays. Extensive television work as well. What's the difference between stage performance and performance for the screen? I mean... Well, I think that they're... You don't want to go thinking that they're all that different um, because you're not, you know, like... Acting is pretending to be somebody else to me, and um, you 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 do you do it. You there are certain um, physicalities and um, reaching an audience that are peculiar to theatre. That all of those techniques are not necessarily needed um, when you work in front of cameras. But I think you know in your own mind the the mental work that you do is is pretty much the same. Um, and you try and find, you know, something. Re- I, you know, I, all my life because I'm untrained. Uh, I've worked with um, some actors who I'm, you know, I'm in awe of them, you know, on 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 screen and and on stage. Do you, you get know. starstruck? Well, I get, I get, I admire people and think, I don't know if I could do that. You know, I, well, I work. With, you know, think of the great Australian actors. We got Hugo Weaving, Richard Roxburgh. I think they're real actors, and I consider well, myself I, something of a charlatan. Well, I, can, I read that you confessed to suffering from imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what I did when I first um, started acting on screen? I, I thought of an actor that I knew, a Hollywood actor, and I thought, I'll just, I'll make, the, I'll make this character that person. You know, I, I'm, and in order to be low-key as a, as a hero, when I was first playing Sergeant McKellar in Rush for the ABC, which is a thing that people uh, said, oh, he's great. And I, I started a career on, on TV because of that role, really. I, what I was doing in, in, in rehearsal was I was imagining that I was Gary Cooper, who was my favorite Western star, because he was, uh, I think he was a very good actor, actually, although people might argue with that because he was kind of the same in everything he did. Uh, but he was cool and uh, he was very low-key and yet there was something genuine about everything he said, you know. So I, I really just copied Gary Cooper with a Scottish accent. <laughs> so uh, I, didn't know any, I didn't know much about researching uh, and inhabiting a role. And honestly, I do see actors, actors that I don't know, they're like famous actors like... Um, uh, you know Daniel Day Lewis and Marlon Brando, who 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 inhabit roles to the extent that it probably drives them a little bit potty. You know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. All yeah. actors have different methods that they yeah, adopt yeah. to create roles. I find that um, I'm, I tend to be more of the kind who can be um, telling dirty jokes in the wings and then walk on stage and be somebody completely different. Great. Uh, 
I, f- I find life is easier that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. You're going to have fun at work. Yeah. yeah. Um, All the Rivers Run, Nancy Wake. You're doing a lot with Crawford Productions also. Yes, which yeah. was, uh, Well, that, but after, after um, the, the um, first, my first foray into TV was, was really, um, I did an episode of the old Boney series with John McCallum as the producer. And um, I got spotted by... It was a Rod Mullenau, wasn't it? In Burnley? Uh, no, it was... Um, no. Rod Mullenau had a series called Ryan for uh, Crawford Productions. Right. But, uh, but Boney was produced by the people who did Skippy, Lee Robinson and John McCallum. And um, I, I was noticed in that, um, I think, by um, Lynn Bayonis, who was working at Crawford's, and I was cast in a rather dark criminal role uh, in an episode of Homicide and so I started uh, if you got on with uh, Crawford's and uh, it's funny it was such an old-fashioned it was almost like an old theatre company but set they had concurrent productions of Division 4 and Matlock Police and Homicide Ryan at one, t- at one stage they had four one-hour weekly productions going and they were in terms of their output they were the biggest independent television producers in the world you know, there were Todd Goodmans and all your people in the States, you know, the Aaron Spelling, all those people, they didn't have that, that many hours of product uh, as Hector Crawford did. And he was like, he was like the old, as kind of, he was like an old actor manager of a theatre company. He was a vuncular and he turned up on set and he talked to the actors and the crew and, and, his, and his, uh, his wife and his sister Dorothy Crawford was always present there as well. And uh, when you when you he liked you in one of his shows, you got a personal letter from Hector Crawford, um, saying congratulations on your role as such and such in Homicide. I enjoyed your work very much. You know? How nice is that? That's lovely, lovely. <laughs> and so, did you need to audition for other roles, or would the studio contact you? And well, I, I started by auditioning. Obviously, I auditioned for for um, um, one or two things, and then I, it got to the stage where I was working a lot in TV. I got asked for for certain things I I started doing feature films in 74 with um, I worked with Tim Burstall in a, in a movie called End Play and he just rang uh, my agent and, and asked if I was available for this role in this feature film which I then did and then I did another film with Tim uh, Mrs. El- Eliza Fraser with Susanna York and Trevor, Noel Ferrier uh, Noel Ferrier yeah. Trevor Howard yeah <laughs> and uh, it was it uh, was yeah, it was a it was kind of um, a good period for me in in the um, late seventies, early eighties, when uh, probably my my richest sort of screen acting time. A lot of period television and film being. Yes, there was, and so Rush for ABC TV was kind of the king uh, of the uh, Gold Rush era type shows, and it was very well written as well by a great team of writers and. Um, uh, it was an idea by Jim Davin actually who later went on to do Country Practice he was the, he wrote the original script for Rush when he was with the Melbourne ABC and um, that I, I kind of think that Australia established itself as a, as a, uh, as a the renaissance of its filmmaking industry because it had one back in the 1930s as we historians will tell you but this new renaissance was to do with these stories of, of early settlers in early Australia, period dramas and women in crinolines and people on horseback and everything. It was a lot of fun. I Certainly Rush for me was like being in the Westerns that I loved, you know, I was a big cowboy story fan. 
as a kid, I was a member of the Roy Rogers Happy Trails Club. You know, that's when I was eight years old. <laughs> so I, finally, I, I got—I found myself in my in my mid to late twenties, you know, riding on horseback, uh, chasing a bad guy and firing at him with a revolver. And I thought, I think I've died and gone to heaven. I'm getting paid for this. <laughs> um, going along with all that action, uh, hero stuff, yeah. etc., is a degree of sexuality. You know, you were known as a sex symbol. Mm. Is that embarrassing? Is that something you embrace? I know that, or you capitalise on? I, I defy anybody to say, oh, no, I really don't care about that. When <laughs> people say, oh, he's sexy, you go, well, thank you very much. And you kind of, you just got to... Don't start believing your own publicity, but, you know, take it for what it's worth, because it's much better than, than people saying, well, well it's it's shame he's got no charisma. It's you know? part of the branding of John Walters, <laughs> yeah. the actor. So I just, yeah, yeah. I, I, I take it and hopefully, um, you know, uh, don't let it do too much to my... You know, I'm, I'm self-critical enough to, to be able to deal with it, I think. You know? Yeah, yeah. Even in Rake, I mean, I saw you recently flesh, yeah. flashing your bum in that. There, there was my <laughs> scraggy old ass on screen in Rake. How about that? Uh, I, I, that I valued that. You know, for someone um, who, uh, yeah, well, that was just a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, my seventy-year-old bum was there on TV. Mm. But you know, um, it's 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 good. My dad always said one thing that he he said about you know like lasting in 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 the business was um it's important that you stay healthy you know and um i think he meant you know as well you know extra healthy you know staying fit and and so on uh so um i've i've tried to do that one by one i've knocked off the things that were affecting my health such as drinking smoking etc it's just a genuine desire to to actually um you know, stay healthy, really, and and not be... Those things are okay when you're in your 20s and 30s, you know, and 40s even. You know, you, you can be dissolute and still be okay. But it's not a good look to keep do, doing it when you're older. Yeah. <laughs> so. An opening night ritual, when you do a theatre show, do yeah. you, do you, are you superstitious in the theatre? I don't think so, no. I, I did, um, you know, I've, I've, I don't have much in the way of ritual. What I do... And I still do it is, you know, you have this thing called the half hour call in theatre. Well, I can't do that. I, you know, having said it, I, I can walk on stage from the wings having done anything else. But I go to the theatre two hours before the show. And I want to be in that theatre, in that building, and maybe pop out to buy a coffee and a sandwich. But I'm there at the theatre so that, you know, I'm in, I'm in my, my, my home as it were, and and then I can walk on stage with great ease and, you know, before anybody's done any little, you know, understudy rehearsals or anything on the stage or, in the you know, the sets being established for the start of the show, I go into, go onto the stage with an empty auditorium and just stand there. I don't necessarily do exercises or anything. I just stand just there. Just absorbing the energy. Yeah, I just look around and I say, yep, yeah, this is the place I like. And, uh, and then I can do anything, you know, I sit in the dressing room, uh, I like to get. I just like to get ready really early. Yeah, focus part of the focus yeah. and preparation. Yeah. Mm. Reviews. Did you read them when, or do you read them when you perform? Yeah, I, I do read them, and I, I sometimes I wish I hadn't. But um, you know, if they if they're, if they're a weird thing, aren't they? If 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 you get a good review, you say, well, that review, of course, I always knew they were a genius. <laughs> and if you get a bad one, you say, well, what a prick! They wouldn't know what they were talking about. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've coped with, um, all kinds of reviews. I, I, look, I haven't often been reviewed badly, but I have been reviewed badly. 
Um, I think I think Harry Kipex. I was in a play for the old theatre company. I was actually in Bernard Shaw's uh, Caesar and Cleopatra with Robin Niven as Cleopatra. And I didn't know what I was doing. I don't think I, I I'm pretty sure I wasn't really very good in it. Um, and uh, Harry Kipex called me barely adequate. <laughs> so I thought, well, he didn't call me rotten, really, but if I was, I was adequate, but only barely adequate. And it I, makes it tough to go on and do the rest of the season. Yeah, doesn't well, it? I, I, to be honest, I thought, you know what, I think he's right. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, 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 to be overly self-aware is really the start of a, a, a bad road to go down. And in... I think it's best ex- the best example I can give you of how I feel about it is that I I used to watch the the rushes or dailies when I was filming, and like every every night you'd you'd um, after shooting you'd go and see the previous day's work on a screen, all the takes, uh, raw uncut footage, and uh, it would be you'd see yourself on the big screen. Uh, and um, I enjoyed it when I was younger. I thought, yeah, it's okay, you know. And as time went by, I I saw the end product of myself, and I it wasn't that I thought I was bad. I just didn't enjoy watching myself anymore. I thought this is this is not good for me. I like to do it, you know. I don't watch myself when I'm in the theatre. I don't know what I look like on yeah. stage or yeah. it'll sound like really. And I'd rather it be that way when I'm in front of the camera as well. So I I don't watch myself. Even the finished, there are things like, I think you mentioned the break. I, I didn't watch any of those episodes. Right. And I quite often don't these days. Um, just because I like to, I like to, it, I, I like to feel fresher the next time in front, I'm in front of a camera. I don't want a memory of what I was like the last time. You know? yeah, that residue. No, I don't <laughs> want that to affect me. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe said that when she's away from work, she needs to be alone to restore herself. Right. How do you restore yourself? Well, um, my my biggest relaxations are, you know, sitting on my own playing guitar just for my own self and trying out different different songs, and I can do that for hours on end and unwind. I do like to be, uh, well, I like I've I've always had families. I've always had children around me because you know I've had two children from a first marriage, and now I've got these three, and um, and I really enjoy having that to focus on. Uh, I love watching them grow up. I love being a part of their growing up. So um, it, it, it really does take me away from the business. There's a crossover when occasionally they've been to visit me, you know, on set or in theatres and things that not so much when they get older, you know, as, as teenagers, they think, oh yeah, we've done that. We don't want to see them at work anymore. And uh, that's cool too. You know, I take that and they start to do more interesting things themselves, you know, because, you know, Archie, for example, is now 17. He's doing, you know, he's doing grown up things with his life. And, um, and I, I, I love seeing all of that. So I have no um, uh, particular technique for, for, for winding down, as it were. Just go back to enjoying life. Yeah. Well, you're about to give birth to another child of sorts. Yes. In you've written a musical. Yes. Can we, can we learn well, something about that? Of all the things I've written in the past, I've written, of course, a, a, well, you could call it a play, a glass onion, but series of, it's a monologue style thing, and I've written other things, and I've written prose. I've been asked to write articles for newspapers, on, on usually on show business things. I've had pieces in the age and so on. So writing has always been, I've, I've always thought, I'm going to write, I'm going to write more. As I get older, I'm going to write more. And 
being in lockdown uh, from the uh, pandemic uh, this year has just prompted me and Stuart Derrieta, who's a great creative partner of mine. I always, writing for the stage, I thought, let's write something else, maybe for the two of us to do. It started as an idea, maybe as a kind of, Stuart and I could do another show that was like a, a sort of, you know, a bit of banter between two guys that were in lockdown, in a, you know, in a, something that's topical and uh, have some songs to go with it, you know, like a, a sort of two-man stand-up with music. Uh, and but it, the idea progressed from that to this period-setting musical play that we've come up with called Rondolino, based on, loosely based on history, but there, there, are, there is historical fact that there was a there was a, a return of the bubonic plague in Italy in the 1630s. And at around that same time, the great inventor Galileo was uh, found guilty of heresy by the, by the Holy Roman Church and sentenced to uh, imprisonment for life. And the Medici family, who were the most powerful family in Europe uh, and had been for centuries, um, the, the head of the Medici family was the, the, uh, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Ferdinando II. And, uh, he went to the uh, Inquisition and um, and uh, kind of sponsored Galileo and and said uh, we, so he got he got his sentence commuted to home detention. So we took those loose facts and we we put them together so that Galileo is with Ferdinando, who's a younger man, an upstart playboy who doesn't like, and Ferdinando thinks that Galileo is a boring old fart. He's known him since he was a kid, and um, but he's got to look after him because his dad told him he had to. And uh, two servants, and the and the plague strikes, and the and so the story is a is a musical kind of. We <laughs> it's a bit crazy, a bit eccentric. It's a bit sort of Monty Python esque or Blackadderish, and um, a Renaissance romp, you might call it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a serendipitous resonance there that uh, the show is set during the plague or yeah. the time of the plague, and it's been conceived. Yeah. at the time of another play. Yes, and the, um, the, we were in lockdown when we wrote it. So it, it does have this incredible serendipity. And um, we, we, we deliberately, we thought, let's write, you know, something that had, resonates topically. Uh, because at first when Stewie said we should do something about plague and lockdown, I, I, I was going, well, yeah, but everybody and his dog will be writing something to do with the play. But as it happens, Stuart was the one who had this Renaissance uh, idea and came up with this historical story that made me go yeah that's something and I so when I started writing book and lyrics and Stewie came up with some great music for it all done with strings and harpsichord and a bit of percussion and um, so we now have a finished product of a play which is um, garnering some interest um, from theatre companies around the place and uh, hopefully we'll put it on um, where, as and when we can get into a theatre that, that we can fill with people yeah absolutely mm. John, thank you. It's been really great to chat to you over this hour. I've enjoyed it myself, Pete. Thanks. Yeah, no. so I really appreciate it. And all the best with the show. Thank you very much. John is a real gentleman and, as a fixture on our screens and stages over many years, demonstrates that same charm, authenticity and warmth in person. What a treat for us to hear more of his story in this episode of Stages. Thanks to John for making us most welcome. It was great to catch up with him again. Throughout the episode, we heard musical excerpts from a series of recordings that John has made and are available on iTunes. Looking Through a Glass Onion, Jacques Brel, his Jacques Brel album, uh, Cloudland, and of course the uh, cast recording of The Sound of Music uh, produced by the Gordon Frost Organisation. 
Many production elements contribute to the success of a show, whether that be the orchestra in a musical, the lighting design in a play, or the set and costumes. Each has a vital role in creating the world that we invest in. But how many of us notice and appreciate the smaller presence equally as important to demonstrate character and support the narrative? I'm talking about the properties used in a show, or if you like, the props. Those items which might include a basket from Maria von Trapp, a phonograph that records for Professor Henry Higgins, or a broomstick that releases smoke for the Wicked Witch of the West. To enlighten us about this role, I am joined by Properties Master Bruce Ferguson in episode 160 of The Stages podcast. Bruce has created props for a heap of shows and shares fascinating insight to the journey undertaken in designing, constructing, and bringing life to objects that support the illusion we invest in when sitting in an audience. My guest next time, Mr. Bruce Ferguson and the art of the prop. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to The Stages Podcast. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.